Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show here at 77 WABC, the crown jewel of AM radio. For the next two hours from four to six Eastern, we're going to be here talking politics, news, history, culture, uh, and uh, just about anything else. We're going to be taking your calls later at 800-848-9222. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, We got a great plug today on page one of the Washington Post uh, who wrote, Stone, uh, a veteran Republican operative whose sentence for trying to impede the Russia probe was commuted by Trump, gained a high-profile perch this year on WABC-AM, one of the top-rate radio stations in New York City. The first guest on the June debut of the Roger Stone Show was President Donald Trump. Quote, uh, I have the greatest president since Abraham Lincoln on my show, President Donald J. Trump, Stone told his audience. I believe Donald Trump was put in place by the Lord at this pivotal moment in American history. The article went on. The rest of it's not quite as complimentary. Uh, Of course, they failed to mention that although I received a full and unconditional presidential pardon, uh, that later, uh, almost a year later, By order of a federal judge, the Department of Justice was forced to release the last remaining long-redacted sections of their final report in which even special counsel Robert Mueller could not sugarcoat the fact that he had found no evidence of Russian collusion, no evidence of WikiLeaks collaboration, or no other crime on my part. Uh, I was uh, charged to pressure me to testify against uh, President Donald Trump which I declined to do. But in the meantime, as for the Washington Post, thanks for the first page, front page advertising. Dr. Henry Kissinger passed away this year at 100 years old. Uh, I knew Dr. Kissinger. Uh, I met him in 1972 when I was working on President Nixon's re-election. Uh, I uh, got to know him much better in 1980 when I was working for then-Governor Ronald Reagan. Uh, Kissinger was uh, a brilliant, duplicitous, temperamental, power-hungry, strategic thinker uh, who would later become very, very, very wealthy uh, as a paid agent 
for the Communist Chinese Party. Uh, many people don't know that Henry Kissinger, while still at Harvard, actually became a paid consultant to the State Department under President Lyndon Baines Johnson. It was under President Johnson that uh, Henry Kissinger first advocated for the illegal uh, and secret bombing uh, of Cambodia, which began in 1965 uh, during the Johnson administration, would be later revived by the Nixon administration. The bombings were aimed at destroying the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong uh, sanctuaries uh, and their supply rights, routes in Cambodia, uh, but they were a secret. They did not have congressional authorization. Uh, these were war crimes. Uh, there were nearly three million people killed. Uh, Henry Kissinger, first as a consultant and later as Secretary of State, was behind them. Uh, perhaps this is one of the reasons why Kissinger is revered uh, in the uh, more fashionable places in Washington and New York, uh, but uh, despised on the hard right and the hard left. Uh, we don't know to this day how many American soldiers were killed due to these secret bombings. Uh, it is uh, notable that Dr. Henry Kissinger first came to prominence uh, as a foreign policy advisor to New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Uh, but when Rockefeller's presidential campaign in 1968 flamed out, Kissinger started sending what were described as brilliant foreign policy memos to presidential candidate Richard Nixon. So impressed was Nixon that he would hire Kissinger in 1969 as his national security advisor. What Nixon didn't know was at the same time he was sending his brilliant memos to Nixon, Kissinger was also sending the exact same memos to Nixon's opponent, Democrat Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Uh, I, what amazes me is that Henry Kissinger just walks away, waltzes away when it comes to his responsibility for creating the mentality that would go on to create Watergate. Uh, it was Henry Kissinger's negative reaction to the leaking of the Pentagon Papers. The Pentagon Papers uh, were government records regarding the history of our failed involvement in Vietnam. Uh, and Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who had uh, worked uh, for Kissinger, had been on the National Security staff, uh, leaked them to the New York Times. Uh, initially, Nixon was unconcerned because while the Pentagon Papers had no reference to the actions or mistakes of the Nixon administration. They essentially documented the bad decision-making uh, by the Kennedy and Johnson administration uh, that got us deeper and deeper into Vietnam. Uh, but uh, Dr. Kissinger said uh, that no president would be able to make foreign policy decisions uh, as long as there was the specter of them being read about in the newspaper. Uh, he actually says in the Watergate tapes that Ellsberg must be destroyed. Uh, it was at the insistence uh, of Henry Kissinger uh, that a number of staff members from the National Security Council uh, and uh, the Nixon White House were subjected to 
the first illegal wiretaps. This included, by the way, journalists who were also wiretapped. Uh, to my knowledge, uh, the federal government hasn't wiretapped journalists again uh, that I know of until, of course, the Obama administration wiretapped James Rosen, who was covering the White House for Fox News. Kissinger uh, was uh, also played a, a very strange role uh, in the 1973 Yom Kippur War. Uh, very much like the failure of intelligence that we saw in these recent attacks uh, on Israel on October 7th, uh, Israel found itself with a complete intelligence failure, uh, and there was a lightning attack on Israel by Syria and the Egyptians, and Israel found themselves very quickly short of ammunition uh, and with their backs to the sea. Golda Meir uh, the Prime Minister uh, of Israel sent an emergency message to President Richard Nixon asking for the airlift of lethal way aid to save Israel. It is important to note that Dr. Henry Kissinger was opposed uh, to this airlift, as were the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, including the Chairman, uh, Admiral Thomas Maurer, uh, and uh, the uh, entire bureaucracy of the National Security Agency, uh, as well as the State Department. Nixon was insistent, uh, and after a bureaucratic delay uh, by Kissinger, who knew that sometimes when Nixon gave an order that you disagreed with, you could wait him out and he might change his mind. Uh, but after a brief delay, it was Richard Nixon who airlifted 37 million dollars of lethal aid to uh, Israel, which saved Israel from absolute annihilation. Now, there is great criticism of Nixon today, Nixon and Kissinger, for the opening of the door to China, uh, but uh, this was really addressed extraordinarily well in a, a really excellent piece in the New York Post uh, by uh, my friend Monica Crowley, who worked for President Richard Nixon in his post-presidential days, she really uh, summed up the entire symbiotic and, and complicated relationship between Kissinger and Nixon. Uh, it was Nixon who engineered the opening to China. He did so to counter Soviet power and help the Vietnam War. It was Nixon who tasked Kissinger with the secret negotiations to make it happen, Crowley wrote. While our resources were being depleted in Vietnam, it was Nixon who established a temporary detente with Moscow, uh, and he sent Kissinger to hammer out the details. Working together, they would ultimately get a strategic arms limitation agreement, one of Nixon's greatest achievements. Nixon uh, offered unwavering support for Israel while seeking a stable, uh, stable peace in the Middle East. He put Kissinger on a plane to conduct shuttle diplomacy that would ultimately end the Yom Kippur War. As I insert, only after Nixon ordered the uh, lethal aid to be delivered to Israel. Crowley goes on to write, all these policies were met with relentless criticism, yet created a more stable global framework at the time of great instability. But uh, the part I objected to, she writes, for his efforts leading to the Paris Peace Accords, Kissinger, 
uh, along with his North Vietnamese counterpart, was awarded the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize. In other words, they denied the prize to Nixon, Kissinger's boss, whose policy Kissinger was executing. The establishment hatred of Nixon was so fierce that uh, it continually sought to credit Nixon, pardon me, Kissinger, with Nixon's vision and policies. Uh, in 1980, Henry Kissinger tried to persuade Governor Ronald Reagan, who at that point had corralled the presidential nomination, into taking former President Gerald Ford as his vice presidential running mate. Kissinger uh, persuaded uh, the president by saying, or sought to persuade Reagan by saying that he saw a division of labor under which Reagan would have responsibility uh, for domestic policy, while Vice President Ford would have responsibility uh, for foreign policy. Well, not really President Ford, actually Henry Kissinger. Fortunately, uh, Governor Ronald Reagan said no uh, and uh, went on to become president. The saddest part, I think, in the Kissinger story, however, comes after the time he serves as Secretary of State to Nixon uh, and to uh, uh, Ford. Uh, going back to Monica Crowley, she wrote, uh, I think, very tellingly, uh, what served America's interests in the 1970s, constructive engagement with the Chinese Communist Party, became detrimental as Peking began to rise, grew richer, and engaged in what it called unrestricted warfare against the United States as it sought global domination. In fact, Kissinger and associates become paid agents uh, of the Chinese Communist government, uh, and that is the CCP. Kissinger, uh, Crowley wrote, continued to advocate treating China as a strategic partner rather than a grave adversary. Uh, and that uh, Again, I would interject, Kissinger and Nixon had no way of knowing after they recognized this dirt-poor, agrarian, non-computerized country of millions uh, that uh, down the road, Presidents Bush and Clinton uh, would both uh, afford most favored nation trading status to the Chinese, uh, and Bill Clinton would actually sell them uh, our top secret military missile targeting strategy through a company called Laurel. It was these things that made China the dangerous adversary that it is today. Kissinger's close ties to communist China uh, really meant that he was aiding and abetting our most dangerous enemy. Uh, she also notes that he, that he, Kissinger, embraced treacherous globalism, including empowering Klaus Schwab, his World Economic Forum, and other transnational uh, organizations pursuing unaccountable, undemocratic global governance at the expense of American power and sovereignty. Kissinger's failure to change course and combat the evils of the Communist Party and globalism as they became increasingly dangerous to America brought the former Secretary of State much deserved opprobrium. Here's how Crowley really sums it up. Nixon was the architect. Kissinger was uh, the craftsman. Now, before the end of today's show, I'm going to tell you uh, who Deep Throat was. You remember Deep Throat. He was 
the source for the Washington Post's Woodward and Bernstein, uh, the uh, journalists at the Washington Post uh, who wrote a uh, establishment-oriented version of Watergate, they left out a lot. They would later claim that a source inside the Nixon administration, who they identified as Mark Felt of the FBI, was their link. Mark Felt was not Deep Throat. I know who was, and so did Henry Kissinger. So before the end of today's show, I'm going to lay it on you. You get to find out who Deep Throat was. If you're just tuning in, this is the Roger Stone Show at 77 WABC. We are making AM radio great again. Please take a minute to download the 77 WABC radio app, and that way you won't miss any of the great uh, commentary or entertainment programming here uh, at WABC. Uh, if you're a political junkie, you no doubt this past week watched the uh, Gavin Newsom-Ron DeSantis debate in which the governor of California squared off against the governor of Florida. One thing is for sure, Gavin Newsom himself said it at the very end, neither one of them will be the nominees of their party in 2024. This was all upside for Gavin Newsom. Uh, he was advertising his availability in the event that Joe Biden uh, gets the hook from the powers in the Democratic Party and they need a different nominee. The polls would certainly indicate that as a possibility, if not a probability. But in the case of Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, this was a Hail Mary pass. This was a unique opportunity to breathe life into a flagging campaign. The most recent poll, I think it is a McLaughlin uh, and Associates poll, shows President Donald Trump leading nationally at 68%, uh, with Governor Ron DeSantis at 9%. Uh, we know that he is, based on every poll, uh, at least uh, 30 to some places, 40 points behind in Iowa, where he has staked his entire campaign. So Ron DeSantis needed a knockout punch. I would argue uh, that while he acquitted himself fairly well, he did not achieve what he needed to. You see, Gavin Newsom uh, is as smooth, uh, as oily, uh, as adroit uh, a politician as I have ever seen. I'd say he floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. And he got in some heavy digs at Governor DeSantis for running 40 points behind. Uh, but DeSantis had the easier task because uh, well, Sean Hannity uh, put up on the screen both economic and crime statistics were a setup for DeSantis. After the debate, Newsom's handlers would argue that that was a violation of the agreed to ground rules. Uh, Sean Hannity, who's a friend, disputes that. Uh, they also claim that DeSantis pulling a, uh, well, a poop map uh, and uh, a outtake from a pornographic school book out of his pocket as visual aids for his debate uh, violated another rule. Once again, to, his, uh, to be clear, uh, Fox and uh, Sean Hannity uh, deny that. 
More precisely, however, I think Ron DeSantis forgot uh, the lesson that uh, comes from the first and most famous presidential debate. Uh, that is, how you look is every bit as important as what you say, perhaps even more important. You see, in 1960, in the epic Nixon-Kennedy debate, Nixon thought substance was more important than style. Nixon showed up in Chicago uh, after making, uh, coming out of the hospital where he had been hospitalized for an infected knee, made five campaign stops on his way to Chicago, showed up completely exhausted, uh, uh, still running a fever from the infection in his knee, still on antibiotics, where Jack Kennedy got to Chicago early, sunned himself uh, on the roof of his hotel with two gorgeous hookers, they say at the lighting check uh, that John Kennedy looked like a bronze god. Uh, and they said Nixon, well, his face was as gray as his suit. Ron DeSantis uh, looked tight to me, nervous, jumpy. Uh, he doesn't have a natural smile. Uh, like Nixon, he should stop trying to smile. It, it comes across as a very phony. Uh, and I would point out Nixon even had, pardon me, DeSantis even had Nixon's trademark five o'clock shadow. Bottom line, I don't think Ron DeSantis got what he needed out of this debate. Uh, and I give enormous credit to Gavin Newsom because his state is a basket case, uh, yet he never appeared rattle. Uh, and he did put lipstick on that pig. Uh, DeSantis is now uh, in a frantic situation. The, the super PACs that, are, uh, that propped his campaign up, for, to which he really shifted all of the money, millions of dollars that was actually raised for his gubernatorial re-election in Florida, uh, it seems to be in a meltdown. They've gone through two chief executive orders in 10 days. Uh, and it's uh, important to note that Governor DeSantis has a very difficult decision to make, and it's right around the corner. You see, the last date that he can take his name off the ballot for the upcoming Florida primary, which is not until March, is December 12th. But the Iowa caucuses are January 15th. Does Ron DeSantis really want to face a potential 40-point loss in the Sunshine State? Multiple polls show that that's where he is right now. So uh, it, will re it remains to be seen uh, what he will do. But in the meantime, uh, he continues to have closed his campaign operations in New Hampshire, uh, in Iowa, uh, in, uh, uh, in South Carolina and Nevada, putting all chips on Iowa. Notably, by the way, this week he ditched the boots the boots with the lifts in them, they seem to be gone, which would indicate to me that the Trump campaign has gotten inside his head. I used to think that Adam Schiff was the most odious huckster and con man uh, in the U.S. Congress. After all, he said that he had seen more than circumstantial evidence of Russian collusion between Russian intelligence and Donald Trump's campaign. Uh, and he never produced anything of the kind. Uh, but now it appears uh, that uh, Dan Goldman, 
the scion to the Levi Strauss of fortune, uh, may have, have surpassed Adam Schiff as the single most odious member of Congress. Just this past week, Dan Goldman was still peddling the conspiracy theory that Hunter Biden's laptop had been tampered with or perhaps uh, is not real. Uh, let me point out that the laptop, as first published in the New York Post, has now independently been analyzed uh, by the Washington Post, the CBS News, the New York Times, uh, and many other media outlets who have consistently confirmed, more recently, the authenticity of the contents included in the Washington Post's bombshell reports. Yet in a hearing last week, Dan Goldman uh, intimated, let's get this exactly right, uh, he asked, uh, he said, well, uh, of a witness, in this case, uh, uh, Michael Schellenberger, uh, an independent reporter uh, who dissected the Twitter files, uh, it was actually Goldman who said uh, that the laptop and the hard drive by the Washington Post were not really the same thing. Lap, uh, Schellenberg said that they, in fact, uh, had been uh, authenticated. They were the same contents, Schellenberger said. How do you know Goldman shot back? Uh, are you suggesting that the New York Post participated in a conspiracy to construct the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop? Schellenberger replied, no, sir. The problem is the hard drives can be manipulated by Rudy Giuliani or Russia. There it is, a conspiracy theory. What evidence is of that, of that is there, said Schellenberger. Well, there's actual evidence, Goldman said, uh, but the point is it's not the same thing. I'm sorry, Congressman, there is uh, no evidence. In the meantime, uh, Biden's, Hunter Biden's lawyers have subpoenaed me, uh, for re what reason I have no idea. Everything I know about Hunter Biden's laptop, I read in the New York Post, and I believe it to be accurate. So the idea that this Democratic congressman is back to try to trying to discredit the laptop is almost unbelievable. Uh, as you know, when Steve Bannon uh, and Peter Navarro, both of whom worked for Donald Trump, were subpoenaed to testify before the January 6th committee, uh, they refused rather than asserting their Fifth Amendment rights. They were both subsequently charged with contempt uh, and uh, they were went on trial for contempt and they were convicted uh, for contempt. Uh, they are both appealing those convictions. But the House Oversight Committee has subpoenaed uh, Hunter Biden, uh, Jim Biden, his uncle, uh, a third member of the Biden crime family. It remains to be seen whether they will submit themselves to that, those subpoenas. Uh, and if they do not, well, then I think it is clear uh, that uh, we have a two-tiered justice system. Anyway, this is The Roger Stone Show. We're looking forward to your calls at 800-848-9222, and we'll be right back. This. this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org is the Roger Stone show on 77 WABC welcome back I'm Roger Stone and this is 77 WABC radio the crown jewel of AM radio we told you why Henry Kissinger was a brilliant duplicitous temperamental power hungry and strategic thinker uh, and, well, when you think about where he's going, I hope he has a, an asbestos jumpsuit. Joining us now uh, is uh, Barry Habib. Uh, Barry Habib is the CEO of MBS Highway. Uh, he is an American entrepreneur. Uh, he's also an Amazon best-selling author for his book, Money in the Streets. Uh, he is widely viewed as the country's foremost expert on mortgage uh, and the housing markets. Uh, He is widely credited with actually saving the mortgage industry in 2020 from margin calls due to actions by the Federal Reserve. Uh, His presentation to the Fed created stability at a critical time. Uh, Barry Habib has won three crystal ball awards by Zillow and Pulsonomics for the most accurate real estate forecasts out of 150 economists in the United States. Uh, he was the 2019 Mortgage Professional of the Year. Uh, a, let's just say it. When it comes to the economy, he's the single smartest guy I know. Uh, and as James Carville famously said about Bill Clinton's campaign for president, certainly true in 2024, it's the economy, stupid. Barry Habib joins The Roger Stone Show now. Such a privilege to be with you, my friend. Hope everything is going wonderful in your world. And... Uh... I love the asbestos jumpsuit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe crack up out loud. Well, I was a neutral uh, on Henry Kissinger. I saw both the good and the bad until he tried to seize power uh, by convincing Reagan to turn over foreign policy uh, to Ford. And then I saw the way he enriched himself uh, as an agent of the Chinese Communist Party in his uh, later years. Believe me, Henry Kissinger knows who Deep Throat was, and Deep Throat's leaks to the Washington Post brought down Richard Nixon. We're going to tell you that before the end of the show. Uh, But, uh, Barry, I want to focus uh, on the economy because uh, President Biden is out touting Bidenomics as if Bidenomics are a huge success. You heard this from Governor Gavin Newsom in the debate claiming uh, 14 million new jobs. And uh, it sounded like a campaign pamphlet, actually. Uh, Let's look at the economy going forward. Uh, Barry, what's going to happen, for example, when it comes to inflation? Well, you know, I want to talk about inflation, but just to to highlight what you had brought up with Gavin Newsom saying, and, and the Biden administration, of course, touts all of the jobs 
under their watch, which they take credit for. Remember, none of these jobs were created. These are simply putbacks from the jobs that had to be taken away because of because of COVID. So when you tell people that they can't work and they can't go to work and then they come back to work, those aren't jobs that are created. These are just putbacks from the jobs. And if you look at the the number of employed, uh, we're we're not anywhere near the type of growth rates that would be commensurate with an economy that we're humming along. In fact, uh, if we take a look at the job numbers in depth, they're they're a mirage. You know, it's they're done by the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But you may as well take the the L out of it because they're just BS. And it's crazy because. As the, as the public looks at the headlines, and quite frankly, many of the commentators, they don't dig deep. You know, there's a few highlights that, that we can talk about just briefly, but when you, when you look at the way that the job reports are constructed, it's, it's a Herculean effort. You know, we have 167 million people in the labor force, so they rely heavily on models. And what we can see is that if you look under the hood and you look at the faultiness of the models, there are ways to corroborate information to see is this is this just smoke and mirrors or garbage? Is the government making this up as they go along? So, for example, the market trades on the headline, and of course, the um, the, the Biden administration you know takes a big victory lap when the numbers come out. Meanwhile, the bond market gets killed. The stock market may react to it, but. Nine out of the last 10 job reports have been revised lower. So nobody looks at that, Roger, because that's like yesterday's newspaper. So the big ballyhooed number is just a farce. And it's actually 10 out of 10 in the private sector. So the private sector, every, every report has been revised lower. Every single one this year, 10 out of the 10 reports that we have thus far received. We got one more coming out Friday. But... If you take a deeper dive, if you see how many jobs were created by the government, it's amazing. They just put 52,000, 52,000, 52,000 for the last three months. You could tell that there is no way that these numbers are going to be exactly 52,000 job creations. They're just making it up as they go, and they're not even smart enough, or maybe they assume the American public is so dumb that they won't look deep and see – you know, they don't even go through. They're so brazen. They don't even say, "Well, let's make 149 and 153 and what?" No, they just they just throw a number in there and expect us to believe it. It is garbage. Now they can't they can't hide the unemployment rate because that's a survey where you actually call people. And these people that are being called, we see the unemployment rate has now risen to 3.9 percent. Now, while that is still a low number, it would have been higher except that. Last month, 200,000 people that were unemployed gave up, so you don't count them anymore. It would have been higher. would have been 4% or above. Now, this is important because the low unemployment rate in the cycle was 3.4%. Every time we rise a half a percent above the low in the cycle, we are in, or I'm sorry, we are about to be in a recession. So I believe that a recession will be upon us in the next two, three months, maybe Maybe even sooner, maybe a month later, but certainly within that range. The thing of it is, is that they don't actually call the recession until a couple of quarters later. So it might be August that that is confirmed, but we may be within that recession. I believe that that's 
that's upcoming, and that's that's definitely here. Now, this Friday, when we get the job report, Roger, you know, I'll put a, a bold prediction, and I'll say you see a four on the unemployment rate. I think you'll see that, and I think the, the number that you'll get as far as job creations will be difficult for them to continue to hide, and it will be a lower number. So apologize for kind of going off on that tangent, but I will talk about inflation. Um, but, but, but this is what we're looking at, first of all, in the job numbers, which is really uh, important. Take, correct me if I'm wrong. Also, the job numbers do not take into consideration those who have given up looking for a job. That is correct. They'll take themselves out of the out of the labor market, and therefore, uh, I'm not sure they really mean anything anyway. Um, you know what? It is unreliable data at best, Roger. So we're being kind when we say it's unreliable data. And in addition to that, if you look at every Thursday, we get initial jobless claims, and the number that's really important is something called continuing claims. So it is possible that maybe. Employers are reluctant because, look, if you hire somebody, you pay a headhunter or during the COVID years, it was tough to get employees. So they may be reluctant to let people go as quickly. But what we have found, if you look at since September, those that were continuing to receive unemployment benefits that went from 1.6 million to 1.9 million. That is a dramatic rise in just two and a half months. That is that is you know, extraordinary to see that type of an increase, which tells us that once people are let go, it is difficult for them to find work again. And uh, you know, these are all signs that point to recession-like conditions. And I think that while it may not be officially called prior to the election, it is certainly something that consumers will be feeling prior to the election. I think the conditions economically get worse and the timing of it will be right right before people you know are are picking their candidate and seeing what, what how they're going to to go about this but the other one is inflation Roger. and inflation is uh it's interesting because we have to look at inflation two ways one way of looking at it is and it's very important to view it this way too is the rate of change now this is critical in how the fed determines monetary policy which affects all of us interest rate, the cost of money, the cost of borrowing. So it's very important that we understand that the rate of change. But if you're a consumer and you hear, oh, look, inflation's coming down and, and it is coming down in the rate of change. Heck, it was 9% and you and I spoke and I, I'd mentioned to you, I said in June, I believe it gets to three and wouldn't, wouldn't you know it, bingo, we hit three exactly in June. But while that sounds good that it's, oh, look, it's 3%, that doesn't necessarily help people who are paying bills because while it's now 3%, it's 3% on top of the 20% that they have been subject to in the past three years. So that cumulative effect is what, what people are feeling the pain of. And those voters, the general public is, is, is feeling inflation while it's very possible that the Biden administration will be touting the fact that oh, look, we've got inflation down to 3%. Now, now, technically, they're right in the rate of change, but it was the massive amount of spending. It was the exorbitant, the Biden budget buster that we did not need of $1.9 trillion. It is the, under the guise of, of the Inflation Reduction Act, which created inflation. It's all of these things that have made the consumer, you know, 
feel very uncomfortable as they go to check out at stores and, and, and pay for necessities at you know, much higher cost to them, um, that the Fed then had to create more pain in the economy by saying, we've got to get this under control. And by the way, the Fed was totally complicit. You know, you had Jerome Powell in 2021, knowing that inflation was about to get out of control, keep interest rates at zero and quantitative easing going. So they put gasoline on Biden's inflation. And the reason was, was because Jerome Powell needed to be appointed again, and he wasn't going to start hiking rates at that point in time. So it is just, it's an awful situation, and consumers, unfortunately, are feeling the pain of it. So uh, let's talk about the role of the Fed, because the Fed will be looking at the inflation rate. Uh, Inflation seems to me very much like unemployment. Uh, It's the uh, amount of inflation is cumulative. What's already happened is not going away. Uh, So just a rate of change uh, is uh, is a change in additional inflation. Families uh, are still feeling it. Uh, But we have seen situations in the past in which the Fed uh, played uh, with rates to try to affect an election. Uh, Do you think that's what they're doing? It's hard to say. Um, You know, Jerome Powell does not owe any allegiance to Biden because remember that Biden wanted Leo Brainerd to be the Fed chair, but acquiesced to Jerome Powell. So I don't know what type of relationship they have, but the Fed will indeed be cutting rates. And I believe that the Fed will begin to cut rates likely at the May 1st meeting. Um, At the outside, the June 12th meeting will be the first rate cut. But there is a possibility that the Fed begins cutting rates March 20th. And I think it's a real possibility, like at least a 50-50, maybe better than 50-50 chance. Because while the Fed's talking tough, as these numbers that they're not going to be able to hide anymore on the employment situation start to come into, into view, I think that the Fed's going to panic, that they've gone too far, too fast. But while interest rates is what everybody focuses on, Roger, the real key as far as consumers, people listening to this, how it will impact them, will be the Fed's balance sheet. So it's, it's rarely talked about, but it's absolutely critical. So what did the Fed do? The Fed, they bought all these treasuries and mortgage-backed securities And they just put them on their balance sheet. So they never really had to have cash for them. They put them on their balance sheet. And by doing so, they bloated their balance sheet to at a high of $8.95 trillion. That's, that's, it's, 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 and almost, you know, incomprehensible number. So they realized that that was too high. That at the time was 35% of GDP. So that was out of control. Now, since then, they have been allowing their balance sheet to run off. So how they do that is as treasuries and mortgage-backed securities mature or get paid off, what the Fed was previously doing was reinvesting that amount to keep their balance sheet at those high levels. Well, once they started the runoff, now we've been seeing about $100 billion runoff, to be exact, $95 billion a month or a little over a trillion dollars a year. And indeed, we've taken it from almost $9 trillion to let's call it 7.7 trillion right now. So they've been successful in bringing it down, but it's still too high. It's about 27, 28% of GDP. And that's 
more than the Fed's comfort zone. I believe the Fed would be tolerant at around 25% of GDP. That's where the Fed's balance sheet was between the years of 2013 and 2018. So I think that they will cease the runoff probably shortly after they start cutting rates. So why would they do that? Because when you have this runoff, that's equivalent to tightening. So if the Fed's cutting rates and tightening with this runoff called QT, quantitative tightening, it's kind of like driving your car with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. It's counterintuitive, counterproductive. So I think they stop quantitative tightening and they start reinvesting this money back into the purchase of bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And for anybody that's listening that's got a business that they're looking to borrow money, a home that they're looking to purchase, or perhaps taking a, a refinance to pay cash out on debts, this is going to be good news because this tells us that you're likely going to see once they start with quantitative, once they stop, pardon me, with quantitative tightening, you will see interest rates on the long side on you know, where people really borrow, car loans, things like that, start to come down. And, and think about it this way. We have to finance a $1.9 trillion deficit. In addition to that, you've got the Fed with another trillion dollars that they're pumping out there in, this, in, in the runoff from their balance sheet. So the market's got to absorb $3 trillion, and that's what's out there for, for absorption. If the Fed cuts back by a trillion, well, now you've eaten up a third of the available supply. It is highly likely that bond buying becomes much more in vogue. And when you buy bonds, when, when the investment community is a, a big buyer of long-ended bonds, it causes yields to decline rather significantly. So that could be very good news towards the middle of 2024 and third quarter of 2024. Uh, folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show, and we are interviewing Barry Habib, one of the country's leading entrepreneurs, a recognized expert in the mortgage and real estate industries. Uh, but he was also the lead producer and managing partner for Rock of Ages, the 27th longest running show in Broadway history. He also produced Chris Angel's Mind Freak at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. When he worked in the mortgage sales industry himself, he personally originated over $2 billion in mortgages. Very honored to have Barry Habib with us. Uh, Barry, Social Security and the debt, uh, two of the most important problems the country's facing. Politicians have no interest in touching this third rail uh, in American politics. So it seems to me they just keep kicking the can down the road. Problem is, the end of the road is getting a lot closer. Uh, and Social Security expected to go bust within 10 years, which could create an immediate 23% mandatory reduction in benefits. Uh, since I'm now old enough to receive my Social Security benefits, this is very concerning to me. Uh, can this problem be fixed or at least meaningfully improved? And uh, do you have some ideas about that? You know, I do, Roger. And first of all, my compliments to you because you have laid it out absolutely perfectly. And I don't think a lot of people realize that there is a if nothing is done, your benefits are going to be cut by 23 percent. 
and think about how many more people within the next 10 years will start to receive Social Security benefits. Certainly a lot of the baby boomers will have become eligible. Um, if not all, will become eligible. And you'll have a lot of the Gen Xers that will become eligible or be receiving benefits. So these people vote. And to, to kick this can down the road further, as you perfectly said, the road's getting narrower and shorter, I should say. Uh, so what can be done? Well, a politician's got to be able to level with the American public and explain to them what is happening and make some very hard decisions that, quite frankly, Roger, no one is going to like. No one is going to like. Now, I tell you this as someone who loathes taxes, but there has to be compromises all over on this because otherwise it's going to be a, a very ugly situation and people are not going to be happy. So, for example... If you did this, and listen, I'm not advocating like I like taxes. I don't like taxes. But you have to buy time. You know, we, we have to remember that Franklin Delano Roosevelt created the greatest Ponzi scheme in history because what he did is he started to give people benefits, which obviously gave him votes, without ever paying into the system. If he would have just said you've got, you're, you're, you have to have paid into the system for 10 years, and then you could start getting benefits if you're eligible, but no – he started right away. So he created the ultimate Ponzi scheme. At the time, there were 35 workers for every person retired. Now there's two for every retired. So as you can see, the numbers don't balance out. He never contemplated people living longer, and people are going to continue to live longer. That's a good thing. But how do you continue to support these people? So we have to buy time. The first thing we have to do is we have to say, look, somehow we got to suck it up. And the only way you can buy time is to go with a 1% increase in payroll tax, on the Social Security portion, not all the way up like Medicare, but on the Social Security portion that is borne half by the taxpayer, half by the employer. That is, I, I hate it because remember, it hits me both ways. It hits me as an employee, it hits me as an employer. Personally, I hate it, but we have to figure out a grown-up solution and talk about this in a grown-up way. That buys you time, but it doesn't fix the problem. How do you fix the problem? People are living longer, so you say, okay, if you're eligible and you're promised these benefits over the next five, seven years, pick a number, nothing changes for you. Because now we've bought the time with, with the 1% payroll tax. But beyond that, you've got to start extending out this retirement age. It's, it's currently a little under age 67. It'll hit 67. But you've got to get this thing up to 68, 69, 70 for people. And you can't do it immediately. You can't change it by three years right away, but you stage it. You say, okay, if you're retiring you know, seven to 15 years from now, that's still a ways in the distance. Your retirement age goes up by six months. If you're going to be retiring 15 to 20 years from now, you could certainly afford you know, 18 months delay or a year delay. And you have to keep getting this out there till you hit about an age 70 to start receiving benefits. And then, you know, things, Roger, that are ridiculous, like um, workers who are here. I'll, I'll pick one for you. In, in the, the benefits, what you want to try and do is you want to try and uh, cover newly hired state and local workers. They're currently exempt from paying that tax. Why should they be exempt? Let's cover that. That starts to narrow the gap. There's little tweaks you could do. Maybe invest a portion in the stock market or rather than, than the way that it's being done now. These are small tweaks that could be managed correctly, and you can get Social Security 
if not totally fixed, in much, much better shape and get that road that you have for an ultimate fix you know, 30 years, 40 years down the road, um, put us in a much, 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 much better position. But it means we have to have an adult conversation. I haven't seen one, one politician, not one, say, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do because of fear that they're going to lose votes. But we are two elections away, Roger, from this thing being bankrupt. Not bankrupt, I shouldn't say, but, but in a position where it's a mandatory 23% reduction in benefits. We're two elections away. Uh, Barry, with about, uh, I don't know, a little more than three minutes left to uh, our conversation, what role does energy policy play in all of this? Uh, the Biden administration has denied all uh, drilling uh, or fracking permits for uh, oil or natural gas. That has uh, returned our reliance on foreign energy sources. We are no longer energy independent as we were under President Donald Trump. Uh, we've seen this at the gas pump. We now have to go on bended knee to either Venezuela or Saudi Arabia uh, or elsewhere for oil. What role does energy play uh, in uh, the state of the economy by the time we get to the 2024 election? It's an, it's an enormous participant. You got to remember that you know, Biden tapped into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that was uh, really not designed to win the midterm election by, by, by when it was first created. It was designed for safety, but he exhausted it so that the Democrats could get the midterm election results that they did because people were screaming that they were paying five and six dollars for a gallon of gas. So that calmed people down, got him the votes that, that were got the the left, the votes that they needed, but it came at a dear cost. Now, we are reaching a point where oil prices are behaving themselves with WTI between 75 and 80, West Texas Intermediate is what that means, between 75 and $80 a barrel. And the reason for that isn't because of anything the Biden administration's done, it's because of slowing demand and it's slowing demand globally. Economic conditions are slowing, and you see it. This is such a key factor in recession. You see this before recessions. But we need to do more drilling. It is true. People will say, oh, we are producing more barrels than we have in the past. Well, yes, but that's not because of the Biden administration. That's in spite of the Biden administration's efforts to curtail it. They can say whatever they want. If you speak to anyone in oil and gas, like I have, they will tell you that it is it is an uphill climb. And if you look at rig counts, rig counts are diminishing due to the fact that it is it is extraordinarily challenging with the regulations in place for them to do this successfully. If we got rig counts, up, you know, I was I was at Don Jr.'s house last night and, and 45 showed up there. And one of the and he gave a short, short talk. And what he said was, we're going to drill, baby, drill. And, yeah, that's that's the right idea. You have to do that to become less reliant, Roger, and also to keep prices much more affordable for people. All right. I'm afraid we have to leave it there. Uh, Barry Habib, uh, to me, uh, one of the most credible economic analysts uh, with a specialty in the housing and mortgage market. I want to thank you so much for joining us today on The Roger thank Stone you, Roger. Show. Thank you, Roger. Thank you. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell 
but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I am your genial host, Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show. Please take a minute to download the 77 WABC radio app to your cell phone because you don't want to miss any of the amazing programming here uh, at uh, 77 WABC. Uh, Curtis Sliwa, Larry Kudlow, uh, uh, Mayor Giuliani, uh, great programming. You don't want to miss any of it. Rita Cosby, uh, Cats and Cosby. This, these are great shows, folks. So download the 77 WABC radio app to your phone and you won't miss any of it. Uh, my next guest is Kara Castronova. She is a fearless investigative journalist with the Gateway Pundit, uh, but she is also a Golden Gloves boxing champion uh, and the founder of Citizens Against Political Persecution. Kara uh, is also active in the charitable area where she runs a nonprofit organization called Knockout Obesity Foundation, where she acts as the spokesman and current executive director. The charity helps young children lose weight by sending them to summer camps uh, and engages them in year-long weight loss programs. She is a two-times Golden Gloves winner and certified trainer who was once ranked nationally by the U.S. Boxing Association. Uh, let me just say, Kara Castronova is just as bright as she is beautiful, uh, and we are honored to have her here today on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger. It's an honor to be here talking to you today, and thank you for that introduction. Well, uh, I admire you because you are fearless in your investigative journalism for the Gateway Pundit. Uh, and uh, I know you were out on the streets recently interviewing everyday people in New York City. This is something you do quite a bit. Uh, and uh, I read in the Gateway Pundit that you went to the Bronx to do a report on Hispanic voters. Uh, and you found out some very surprising things uh, about people's reaction to Bidenomics and, uh, and what they have in mind for 2024. Tell us about it. Right. So I went out to the Bronx really just to talk to them about uh, Bidenomics, because I know that both President Trump and Biden are really trying to get the Hispanic vote in 2024. It's so important. So I went there just really to talk about the economy and literally left shocked because I did not expect them. I expected them to complain about the economy and to say how terrible Bidenomics is, but never did I expect every single person there that I spoke to, literally every single person saying that they were voting for Trump in 2024. And it was almost like they had Biden uh, derangements syndrome like biden's name triggered people like people walking by on the street if they would hear me say the word biden would start yelling and screaming you know profanities <laughs> and you know everybody was just saying trump 2024 trump 2024 and you know i was i was completely shocked which i think you could see on the video if you go on my twitter page uh you could see the full full video of all of the people that i interviewed and just people passing by saying trump 2024 was almost surreal to see in the bronx new york which is the bluest borough in manhattan by the way the only one with the majority spanish uh, hispanic uh, Hispanic population and also um, voted 83% for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, incredible to see, really. Yeah, it's very interesting if you looked at the New York Times uh, 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 Col Siena College poll 
the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, the NBC poll that where NBC pretended to be shocked, saying this was the first poll that showed Trump leading Biden when uh, you simply have to go to real clear politics for the daily polling average to see uh, that that's uh, not true. Uh, and uh, all of those polls showed very significant inroads by President Donald Trump uh, among African-American uh, and Hispanic voters. Uh, now, Trump received about 12 percent of the African-American vote uh, in uh, in 2020, uh, which is more than George W. Bush uh, uh, received in his reelection. Uh, you'd have to go all the way back to 1960 uh, when Richard Nixon running against uh, John Kennedy actually got almost a third of the African-American vote. More recently, polls have shown Trump getting about 22 percent of the African-American vote. I think he can build on that by talking about his record, the lowest level of unemployment among African-American and Hispanic voters uh, in our history, uh, his, uh, his criminal justice reform uh, in the First Step Act and the Second Chance Act, which is uh, landmark justice, things the Democrats have talked about for 30 years, uh, but many of them voted against it simply because Donald Trump uh, wanted to change uh, the fact that we have harsh mandatory penalties for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use. Uh, and it takes the decision process out of the hands of judges to take into consideration whether uh, the person charged is, let's say, a single mother with three kids uh, or, or, or what the situation. But uh, where you have no prior criminal record, uh, the the results of the 1994 crime bill, as written by Senate Judiciary Chairman Joe Biden and signed into law by President Bill Clinton, has caused the mass incarceration uh, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, of African Americans, particularly young black men. Uh, there's no there's no uh, effort for rehabilitation. This is this is ruining lives. Uh, Trump did more about it than any president in our history. It's something I don't think he talked enough about in his reelection. Uh, it's something uh, that I hope uh, he talks about more uh, in this campaign. Uh, the economy is obviously a huge issue for voters uh, who are hovering around the poverty line, and they're feeling it hardest in certain areas in New York City. Uh, do you think this is what's driving uh, the people you spoke to in the Bronx uh, and others to move from Biden to Trump? Definitely. Uh, certainly, I think it's the economy. That's the main thing. I mean, obviously, people, uh, you know, when things hit home and affect them the most, for example, in the Bronx, um, I think that close to 30 percent of people there live below the poverty line. Actually, it's 27.9 percent. And the per capita income is 19000 $720, household income 36000 which is nothing when you're trying to survive in a city as expensive as New York. So people feel it the most in really poverty-stricken areas like the Bronx, certain areas of the Bronx, exactly where I went to interview people, and I think in other communities. So, you know, I think that um, really this year is going to be a big change. It's going to be different. The next place I plan on going is to Brooklyn and to some of the communities there, talking to some of the 
African-American voters and seeing what they're thinking. And I just have a feeling it's going to be the same thing. I think people are really over the whole Donald Trump is a racist, white supremacist. Um, one of the men that I spoke to said it's now about survival. They don't care about the politics. They don't care about the media and what they're saying. It's literally about survival. Like when you have to think between buying a loaf of bread and a carton of eggs when you're at the store and make that decision. You know, luckily that's not something. I'm very grateful, and I'm very grateful to God that, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle where I'm not – struggling like that. There's so many people in this country that are, that are at the poverty level and really struggling. And I think those are the people that are going to actually ultimately put Donald Trump back in office in 2024. Uh, I want to remind folks that just a few minutes, we're going to be taking your phone calls. That number is 800-848-9222. Once again, 800-848-9222. We're going to be taking your calls right here on the Roger Stone Show. We're talking to Kara Kostranova, uh, who is a reporter uh, with the Gateway Pundit. Uh, to what extent, Kara, do you think the lawfare waged against uh, President Trump uh, has backfired badly in these minority communities? They have a, a history of, uh, uh, of unequal justice. Uh, I think that there, that there is some sympathy for the president. To, to what extent do you think that uh, that this street cred, if you will, uh, is playing uh, in this uh, this fall off for Biden and this Trump resurgence. Well, I think that, uh, you know, the DOJ and Biden, what Biden's administration really uh, overplayed their hands when it comes to the Trump arrests and indictments really backfired in many communities, including the one that I went into and uh, other low income communities, like you said, they uh, have had not good experiences with the law, so it does give Trump uh, a lot of street cred. And people would just start, like, I didn't even have to, it wasn't provoked in any way. You know, I'd be talking to people on the street saying, what do you think about President Trump? And they would start saying stuff like, free my son Trump, or free Trump, free Trump. I really think, like, it it backfired. And it, Trump is really endeared to these communities now. They really look at him like the underdog. I think it's kind of the way that we all looked at him in 2016, when, uh, you know, the minority communities were being told he was a racist and a white supremacist, uh, a lot of these people are really just very busy and they're really working to survive, didn't really at the time have, I think, enough uh, time to do the research and realize that that was all media lies. But now it's come full circle, you know, we're going on almost close to eight years after the fact of 2016 and that election, and I think people are really realizing what we realized back then, that Trump is the underdog, that the elitists don't want him in office, um, and he's, you know, the people's president. And a lot of people said, you know, Donald Trump was, was for the people. He made sure that we had what we needed. He, he was doing more for us. Uh, he, he was making sure that poor people had enough. And these were the, the things that were, people were saying to me on the street. And really, I think that the arrest of Trump has really given him incredible street cred. I mean, it was completely unanimous in the Bronx that everybody's voting for Trump. And free Trump, free Trump was something that I kept hearing. Uh, now, Cara, I don't want to give away a secret, but um, it was big news this week when uh, Congressman George Santos uh, resigned, or I should say, was expelled from the House. He didn't resign, he was expelled. Uh, while I'm not defending uh, him, uh, he's still innocent until proven guilty. Uh, I would have preferred that the House do, as they did in the case, say, of Adam Clayton Powell, uh, waited until he was convicted before expelling him. Uh, but at this point, he is merely accused. Uh, I find it outrageous uh, that Eric Swalwell, a congressman from California, can have a dalliance uh, with a Chinese communist spy uh, while he's a member of the House Intelligence Committee, 
uh, and uh, he is, uh, uh, has full access to national security and classified documents. Uh, the, the woman spy went by the name Fang Fang, died mysteriously in a plane crash, uh, actually inserted an employee in the congressman's office, uh, an intern, uh, yet he was not expelled from the Congress uh, nor uh, under uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, were there any restrictions on his committee assignments, yet uh, we, we expelled George Santos before he has been convicted. Now, if he is convicted, which I, you know, the government wins most of his cases, then perhaps he should, be, should have been expelled. But that said, he's gone. Uh, the Republican Party leaders in the 3rd District uh, are interviewing potential candidates you ran for the assembly in a district which overlaps in the third district. Uh, and a little bird told me that you were among those uh, who were interviewed. Now, uh, people don't know your ethnicity, uh, but you are half a Chinese, uh, half uh, uh, Hispanic, uh, I believe. Uh, half Italian, actually, ha but half everyone a thinks I'm Hispanic. Okay, half Italian, so you're one of God's chosen people. Uh, this uh, this means to me, and I know how articulate you are, and I know what a hard worker and a fierce fighter you are, you would be a tremendous candidate. Uh, wh what is the status of this? Well, I definitely threw my name into the ring, you know, for lack of a better uh, analogy. And, and, you know, it's up to the really the party out in Long Island who we had some really big wins over the past four years, so I really trust the party when it comes to it. There's a lot of people that have been uh, vying for that Santos seat, and because it's such a winnable district, and because we have such a slim majority in the House. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely would love to get the opportunity to represent the district, but um, ultimately, in, in especially in a, an election like this, which is going to come to a special election probably in February, the party picks the candidate. So there's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of great candidates, and I mean great because I literally live over here, so I know a lot of them personally, um, that that are, have uh, been interviewed and that are, you know, thinking about running. So I think they're going to make that announcement very soon. Well, good luck to you. Uh, if the Republican Party sachems are smart, uh, you will be their candidate. You would really, really be excellent. Thank you. Uh, some of your most impressive investigative journalism has centered around the events of January 6th. So I guess my question to you is, what is your reaction uh, to the decision by Speaker Mike Johnson to release uh, the video from government cameras uh, of the events of January 6th. Uh, we haven't seen all of that yet. To me, that's a little disappointing. Uh, right. And, I, and I, I, I note that with some trepidation. But to me, what we have seen so far uh, is pretty incredible uh, in terms of demonstrating uh, the government's secret role uh, in fomenting the violence that day. Uh, what's your reaction to the video you have seen so far? Well, I, I mean, I'm, so, I'm very happy that he released that video, that Speaker of the House did that uh, before McCarthy didn't do it, and that was a promise he had made. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that what was released and what's being released is 
footage from the CT cameras, really no audio is on these, uh, is in this footage. A lot of the video that I've seen and the most damning video against the government and against the police that day is the body camera footage, the full body camera footage that was worn by the Metropolitan Police that day. So that video footage is not being released. What's being released is the, the video footage that was taken from the cameras on the walls and outside the building of the Capitol. So um, that's very useful footage, and it really gives a, a viewpoint and a bird's eye picture, I guess, of, of what really happened that day. But if you really want to go in for detail and hear the audio and hear the things that were being said, the next thing that we have to push to get out there is the body cam footage, which incredibly has not been released. The body cam footage is supposed to be owned by the people. Everybody knows that cops wear body cameras for a reason, and that is to hold them accountable. So, um, you know, it's insane to me that three years later, a lot of this body camera footage hasn't been released, where you literally hear police officers, sadly, very sadly, uh, you know, kind of provoking violence and not saying it in a nice way. So hopefully that body camera footage will be released soon. And I'm very, uh, like I said, the speaker will be more friendly. I hope in the next year there's a second January 6th committee. While we still have the House, hopefully we'll still have it in 2024. I think we will. But uh, why take the risk? I think that in 2023 that the, the House needs to have a second committee investigating January 6th, investigating the trials of the prisoners for January 6th, and uh, investigating how they've been stripped of due process. And if we don't do it this year, I don't know if it'll ever get done. So hopefully this speaker will be more uh, helpful. I went down to Congress, Roger, actually myself a month ago or two, about a month and a half ago to petition to members of Congress. This was right before this speaker got um, got the gavel. And I, a lot of the people there were telling me it's not going to happen with McCarthy. It's just not going to happen. He doesn't want to do anything with January 6th. He wants to sweep it under the rug. That's what I was told by a lot of people in the congressional building and that hopefully a new speaker would be more open to it. So for the next new year, I hope that that is my uh, wish for the new year and what I'm asking Santa for, because we're going on three years uh, now, January 6th. People are still being arrested, literally just got arrested. Someone I know personally just got arrested last week. So it's been three years. People are still getting arrested, and they're going to keep doing this, um, you know, obviously to influence the 2024 election. So the best way that the House if they're smart, the Republicans can influence this election is t showing the truth to the country about January 6th and how, like you said, a lot of the violence was provoked by the police that day, very sadly, and that uh, there were people killed uh, there that nobody knows about and no police officers were not killed like everybody thinks. Uh, look, I have a personal interest in I hope uh, that the Speaker Johnson appoints a new committee uh, to study what the January 6th Select Committee did. Cassidy Hutchinson former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified uh, in uh, open televised hearings uh, that President Trump instructed his White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to call Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn on the evening or afternoon of the 5th to find out how the next day's events would unfold. Those are the words of Liz Cheney. Cassidy yeah, no, Hutch I mean, everybody knows Cassidy Hutchinson was a hearsay witness and really a very sad joke. Uh, I don't want to say that about another female, but it's the truth. And, um, you know, if there was a real January 6th committee, obviously we would expose stuff like that. And, you know, there's real witnesses out there that, that are not hearsay witnesses and that are not being, you know, influenced by the Democrat Party to be part partisan witnesses. So um, I hopefully I'm hoping for you and everybody else that's name got smeared, that's name was smeared and slandered, uh, you know, in front of the whole nation that there's justice and that there's an, another committee hearing. Well, the, the point of this, of course, is that there never was any such call, phone call. I've never spoke to right. Mark Meadows. Uh, either did General Flynn. Cassidy Hutchinson goes on to say, 
uh, under uh, very carefully structured words uh, that uh, that Meadows, the White House chief of staff, was supposed to attend a meeting in a war room uh, in the Willard Hotel, but that she essentially persuaded him not to go. And he later checked in with Stone and Flynn for a download. That's a second act of perjury. The Washington Post has established through four different sources uh, that I was never in any war room. I know nothing about any war room in the Willard Hotel. Uh, now, Cassidy Hutchison, as we learned on Friday, has gone back, and this is very unusual, she's revised her sworn testimony in a 15-page wow. memo, which is, a, and she, these are not grammatical uh, or punctuation corrections. She's changed materially uh, her testimony to try to avoid a perjury charge. So I really hope that the speaker uh, will do the right thing uh, and appoint uh, a committee uh, to take a look at what happened to the January 6th committee. This committee destroyed all of uh, its records, or pardon me, or at least 50% of its records, even though the law and the rules require them to keep those records. What are they hiding? The, the videoed uh, uh, depositions of multiple witnesses uh, have been destroyed. So uh, I am I'm really hoping uh, that we will get justice uh, and and the truth. Uh, now, I know you have been working on a new documentary uh, with Laura Logan uh, about uh, Roseanne Boyland and her death. Uh, tell us uh, quickly, uh, who was Roseanne Boyland? Uh, why is her story important? And how was it when you went to her hometown? Well, for people don't, who don't know who Roseanne Boylan is, which is a lot of people, including Republicans, she's the second woman that was killed on January 6th. Nobody knows that a second woman was killed. And I uncovered the video footage along with a, a reporter named Gary McBride showing Roseanne being beaten right before she died by a policewoman that day. And then she died. And the news reported she died of a drug overdose, which turned out to be absolutely not true. And nobody ever heard her name again. So it's a big cover-up with the government when they covered up her death and, and announced to the media the fake news that she died of a drug overdose. And she's literally been neglected by the news and by everybody really except for uh, institutions like the Gateway Planet and like you Roger who has spoken about her so we, we did a documentary Lara Logan is doing a documentary series on January 6th and it's amazing uh, work it was an honor to get to work with her and to get to see her in action we went down to Roseanne's uh, Roseanne Boylan's hometown in Georgia Kennesaw Georgia we spoke to her family we spoke to her dear friends we spoke to a witness that was there that day the gentleman that went down there with her um, and he went on the record and said you know she was alive when she was beaten by that policewoman because a lot of the questions I had was was she live or was she dead when she was beaten by police officer Lila Morris uh, that day and he said she was alive and that she suffered which was very sad and very heartbreaking to hear but all the more reason for questions like why wasn't Roseanne Boylan ever mentioned by the January 6th committee at all uh, Ashley Babbitt wasn't even mentioned or the other two Trump supporters that died that day but why have they ignored the death of Roseanne Boylan and went on to lie and say that commit perjury and imply that police officers, multiple police officers had died that day, which just isn't true. So it was a really great opportunity for me to go meet her family, to go meet her friends, to see where she grew up, and to really do justice to her life story. And, you know, she, if you Google Roseanne Boylan's name, it'll come up as QAnon supporter uh, who died of a drug overdose on the Capitol steps, trampled by Trump supporters, which is the opposite of the truth. She was a beautiful woman. She was a recovered drug addict, hadn't done drugs in seven, seven years, and she was there and she got, uh, you know, 
crushed by a crowd that uh, police pushed on top of her, then beaten by police officer Lila Morris and died on the steps that day and was swept under the rug by the government and the mainstream media. So hopefully her story will come to light and a real January 6th uh, committee will come forward and say, how did this happen? How did, you know, a protester die that day? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Something the first January 6th committee should have done besides slandering the names of obviously Donald Trump and, and Roger Stone and others. So I'm curious uh, to get off politics for a moment uh, of the uh, extraordinary career you had as a boxer. You first entered the boxing arena as a youth boxer, uh, and uh, you won your first fight in 2002 in the New York Empire State Games in Syracuse. Uh, you boxed regularly at Chelsea Piers at Gleason's Boxing Gym. Uh, and uh, you kept boxing competitively, winning a pair of silver gloves in 2004, the second place prize in the Golden Gloves competition. Uh, you went on to uh, actually box in Madison Square Garden in 2005 uh, in the Golden Gloves championship. Uh, you're, uh, following your Golden Gloves win, you started competing nationally. You were once actually ranked number two in the nation uh, by USA Boxing. Uh, what does it take uh, to becoming a, a, a professional boxing champion? I mean, it took, it was blood, sweat, and tears. Like, uh, you know, like I think, it, thank God I had that experience early on because I really draw back from that experience now with the, the work that I'm doing now and, you know, the fear factor that comes in and just fighting fear and fighting past fear. But it comes a lot of training mentally and physically, more mentally, believe it or not, than physically because there's nothing scarier than getting in a ring in front of a capacity crowd and, uh, you know, standing in front of somebody that's goal is to knock you out and to hurt you. So um, I think that it helped me become somewhat fearless and also somebody that uh, that keeps fighting no matter what you know of course i i had lost i had experienced loss in my career but i had a uh, the fortitude to keep fighting and, and keep trying to win so it was a tremendous amount of work and i feel like helped me build incredible character in my uh, you know early 20s and the times that i was being really competitive as a boxer to really draw back on later in life um, but it was a great experience, and I, I miss it all the time. You know, I currently do some commentating for boxing and MMA just to stay in the world because it's, it's such a great world to step away from politics, like you said, and, you know, just step into the world of boxing and fighting. It's actually much more peaceful, if you could imagine, than the world of politics. Well, uh, obviously this is radio, so you can't see Cara Castronova, but uh, she is uh, stunningly beautiful. On the other hand, she's obviously tough as nails as well. Uh, an extraordinary investigative journalist with the Gateway Pundit, and who knows, perhaps, perhaps uh, a candidate for Congress. Uh, I really think the the party leaders would be very wise. Tell you ran for the assembly in an overwhelmingly Democratic district. We got about two minutes left here. Tell us what that was like. I mean, it was it was a great experience. I got to run in my hometown, uh, so I know everybody here. So it was really uh, surreal to be able to run and try to represent this area. I broke records here as a Republican. This is overwhelmingly Democrat area. I think close to seventy percent Democrat, if not more. And um, you know, I won close to forty between forty three and forty four percent of the vote, which was never done before by a Republican. Usually, it's I believe in the the thirties, the low thirties at most. 
So getting to go around and talk to different um, groups in my community, uh, where I live, Elmont and Valley Stream, which is in the district, is one of the most diverse areas you can imagine in New York or even, I believe, in, in the country, really. That's a suburban area. So just getting to talk to different minority groups and understand what they're looking for, um, what they want from a political leader, I think really uh, was helpful and was very useful to me as a journalist and a writer and hopefully a future politician. So, um, you know, I, I had a great time. I had a great time getting to know the Republican Party out here in Long Island and just the opportunity to spread the, you know, the conservative message to Democrats here and independents and show them that there's different faces than the, the one that they think of when they think Republican. You know, I'm a female, I'm a minority, I, I'm from this area. So a lot of people went out and voted for me, and they actually, um, you know, I think – for the first time voted Republican. A lot of people told me after the election, you're the first Republican I ever voted for. I hope that even before they called the election, people were saying, please don't disappoint me. You're going to be the first Republican I'm going to vote for. Please do us justice. Please do it justice. And I promised that I would. So that experience was great. And um, I think I really proved myself to the party out here that I, I can win and that I could raise money and that people would believe in me and I can make bridges to different minority groups like the Muslim community, like the Hispanic community, like the African-American community that's out here, as well as uh, keep the votes of like the, you know, the, the traditional Republicans that vote out here in Nassau County. All right. We are out of time. Let me thank Kara uh, Castronova for joining us here on the Roger Stone Show. Folks, we're going to be taking your phone calls in the next segment. That number again, 800 848 I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show, and we right back. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. It's the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Take a quick minute to download the 77 WABC app uh, in your cell phone so you don't miss any of the Roger Stone Show. We're here every Sunday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, talking politics, news, history, food, style. Uh, and this is my favorite section uh, of the show. This is where we take your calls. So I want to hear what you have to say. Let's go to Al in Yonkers. Al, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. Hi, Roger Stone. Uh, nice speaking to you. Yeah, Roger, I just wanted to uh, mention, uh, as you pointed out uh, professionally in the beginning of the uh, your program, that uh, Henry Kissinger, you know, had, had passed away this week. Uh, for me, I, I think he was probably the most influential Secretary of State in modern times. Uh, though he did a lot of good things, like uh, dealing with uh, opening up ties to Red China and bringing about the end of the Vietnam War, uh, the bombings in Cambodia, which killed many people, he had his detractors, uh, it also brought about, they say, which was uh, the evil Pol Pot and the Killing Fields. You remember the famous movie in 1984 that won the Oscar. Uh, Pol Pot was an evil, terrible person. Uh, you make an excellent point. I guess uh, the, the important thing here, of course, is most people don't know, is when he was a consultant to the Johnson State Department, while still at Harvard, he was a major advocate for the escalation of the war in Vietnam, uh, which was a mistake, 
uh, based on what we knew, the war was not going well, probably not winnable, uh, as well as a progenitor uh, of the Cambodian bombing, which doesn't start under Nixon, starts actually under Johnson. Uh, and that is, uh, that is probably the greatest single blot uh, of in his career. The, when the illegal bombing in Cambodia becomes known, the Congress actually passes the War Powers Act, making it absolutely clear that before the United States can go bomb another country, they have to seek congressional uh, uh, approval. Uh, Kissinger was an extraordinarily temperamental individual. Uh, he threatened to quit every other day, essentially. If you read uh, Nixon's biography or the biography or, uh, or diaries of H.R. Uh, Bob Haldeman, the White House Chief of Staff, uh, Henry Kissinger uh, is, uh, is uh, uh, the temperamental genius uh, who was uh, threatening to resign every other day. He successfully cut the Secretary of State and the State Department uh, out of uh, any of the conversations regarding the normalization of our, uh, of our relationship with China. Uh, and again, it's a bum rap to say, well, our problems with China today are due to Nixon and therefore Kissinger. Uh, at the time that they recognized China, uh, China was not a world power. They weren't even computerized. They, uh, most parts of the country had no electricity. Uh, it was a backwards, dirt-poor, agrarian society. It wasn't, as I said, until later when both Bush and Clinton give them most favored trading nation status, and Clinton actually sells them our top military secrets in return for illegal campaign contributions. This, by the way, is what Clinton should have been impeached for, not his dalliance with, a, with an intern in the Oval Office while I admit is distasteful, I don't think rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors required for impeachment. So you make an excellent point. Uh, it was called Operation uh, Menu under President uh, Lyndon Johnson, began in 1964. Uh, it, was, uh, it was estimated that as many as 3 million people died as a result of the uh, illegal bombing in Cambodia. Thank you, Al, for your call. Uh, uh, Harriet in Sheep's Head, uh, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. What is your question? Thank you, Roger. You're the best. Um, whatever is being said, Donald Trump is great. And no matter what happens, if the Republicans don't get an army of pollsters to guard the election polls, the fraud will repeat itself. As far as I'm concerned, any sentient human being understands that Trump won. What happened with this election fraud, with the Zucker boxes, Bill Gates shenanigans, George Soros? Can I just give you a case in point? When Rudy Giuliani was running uh, for office, the second time trying to get in to beat Dinkins, I was at the surrogate's courthouse downtown doing research in the record department, and I happened to meet somebody who was working for Rudy. Now, I mentioned to him, if Rudy doesn't go down there and his minions and watch those polls, he was going to lose to Dinkins again. And I read in the paper later that, that 
uh, yes, a Rudy's gang got down at the polls on Upper Manhattan, and there were 10,000 illegal votes told up for Dinkins, and they had to be disqualified. And I tell you, if the Republicans don't get on the ball and get their group together to monitor those polls for election fraud, no matter what we say, all the fraudulent revelations of uh, the Biden corrupt regime, nothing will help unless the polls are manned and they are guarded at Gretchen Whitner, Arizona, uh, Georgia, all this crap that went on. And that is my opinion, Roger. All right. Thank you, Harriet. Look, you're absolutely right. The the Republicans need a much more robust, completely illegal poll watching uh, operation. Uh, it is uh, not incidental that in states like Michigan uh, or, or Philadelphia, uh, Democratic officials would tell the Republican officials, OK, we're finished counting for the night. You can leave. And then after they left, uh, they dump hundreds of thousands of mail-in ballots that came from who know where who knows where that's why in many of these states trump is ahead early in the evening but by the next morning uh, massive leads have disappeared so yes the republicans need to get up there up their game both technologically in terms of watching the vote in real time uh also they do need a ballot harvesting operation in those places where it's legal uh, they need to start banking legal votes uh, in advance, uh, but they also need to be legally prepared. Uh, look, if you're a, a poll watcher uh, and you're uh, and if you're a lawyer watching the elections, you should have the phone number for a judge in case you need to seek an order uh, in order to uh, keep your poll watchers in place uh, or stop what we saw in Connecticut recently, several years ago in Connecticut. Uh, the polls in Bridgeport, Connecticut, were left open two extra hours uh, because it looked like the Republican candidate for governor was going to win. How coincidental this is the same city, Bridgeport, Connecticut, where just recently we saw video of actual people stuffing uh, ballot boxes, which caused uh, a judge to order a new election. Same machine, same Democratic machine. Uh, let me say, finally, uh, that it's interesting that in this recent election in Argentina, uh, where my uh, very good friend Javier Malay uh, was elected as a narco-capitalist, uh, really shaking up the political order there, uh, and I was afraid, following this closely, that he would lose the same way uh, Bolaños had, uh, had lost in uh, in Brazil, uh, Bolsonaro, pardon me, uh, in Brazil. But Brazil is 100% voting machines, whereas Argentina is 100% paper ballots. Uh, and uh, therefore, because they had a robust poll watching operation, they were able to legally and carefully and accurately count 28 million paper ballots, and they got it all done the night of the election. That's really the system we need. Harriet, thank you so much for your call. Folks, if you're just calling in, this is The Roger Stone Show. I'm taking questions uh, across the board. Uh, that number, 800-848-9222. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Joseph in Fairfield, Connecticut. Joseph, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Hello, Roger. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, uh, 
first of all, with the I want to talk about Henry Kissinger, and uh, you mentioned uh, actually one line about him in the man who co- who killed uh, Kennedy. I was on page two ninety seven saying that uh, that uh, he him he uh, uh, that uh, and uh, he he thought that Bush was a lightweight, but that's about it. But Kissinger did say that whoever has the money has the power. So he he was really astute at that. He went to City College, which I also went to in the sixties, and then he went on to Harvard. Um, and he, would you say that he's he, he's a proponent of of globalism since he he mentored uh, Charles, uh, called Klaus Schwab and that whole thing. And over the years, he did uh, uh, make a fortune with his connections to uh, the uh, CCP. I think uh, I think you mentioned that. So he was pretty astute. He's very smart. Um, but he he knew how to manipulate uh, uh, and get to the the, the source of power uh, for his own. Uh, I, I guess because he is smart, he he knew how to uh, sort of garner favoritism and uh, to world leaders. So, uh, look, he was he was a very he could be a very charming courtier. Uh, I assure you. And he, if you listen to some of the white tapes, you're referring to a very famous uh, White House tape in which Nixon and Kissinger are talking about an extremely uh, important diplomatic mission, uh, and they're discussing who they should send. Uh, And Nixon says, well, we could send George Bush. Uh, And Kissinger says, no, Mr. President, he would only F it up. And Nixon says, yeah, I thought the same thing. So uh, the point I was making is after losing two U.S. Senate races uh, and only serving in the House, George H.W. Bush really survived on a series of appointed positions, uh, chairman of the Republican National Committee, uh, ambassador to the United Nations, uh, envoy to China, uh, director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, But uh, Kissinger, yes, I think in his post-government service years, Kissinger uh, adheres to a view that Reagan and Nixon would never have agreed to, which is that America's greatest days as a world leader are behind us, uh, and that it is inevitable that the Chinese and the Russians are going to surpass us in every regard, economically, militarily, uh, technically. Uh, Reagan would never have agreed with that. Nixon would never have agreed with that. And I can guarantee you this, Donald Trump would never agree with that. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, This is the Roger Stone Show. We're taking your calls at 800-848-9222. We're going to go now to Kathy in New Jersey. Hi, Roger. It's Kathy. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for trying to save America and keeping us safe. Appreciate all the work you're doing. I have a question for you. I was listening to radio. I think it was on WABC because I listened to radio all day and Newsmax all night. But a guest on one of the shows had said, once everything gets down to just like Donald and maybe perhaps Nikki, because she's probably going to lead the most and all the other candidates, that her numbers will pick up so much that she will be able to channel, uh, challenge Donald Trump. What do you think about that, um, Roger? Well, first of all, I do think she's challenging Ron DeSantis right now. Uh, and that, that is his problem. Remember, he always wanted this to be viewed as a two-person race. It is not now a two-person race. He has fallen uh, behind her. He's behind her in South Carolina. I believe he's behind her in Nevada. Uh, She is uh, one point behind him in New Hampshire. My guess is she will surpass him. 
uh, at the same time, recognize how massive Donald Trump's leads are. Uh, He is leading nationally at 68% to 9% for DeSantis and 7% uh, for Nikki Haley. So will she emerge as Trump's only challenger or, or, or will this narrow to a two person race? Uh, I think that she will. Will she be able to catch Donald Trump and defeat him? Look, she's a neocon. She is, in fact, George uh, W. Bush in heels, uh, a little too anxious for war. Uh, I think the particularly given our recent experience in the Ukraine, uh, the Americans are tired of endless foreign war uh, and they're tired of shipping billions of dollars to Ukraine when we have, you know, 37,000 homeless veterans in this country. So uh, I don't think she can catch him. Uh, for those who see, who say, well, what about a Trump-Haley ticket? How do you take a, a candidate for vice president who you have referred to multiple times as bird brain? Uh, I just uh, don't see that as being possible. Uh, but Kathy, thank you very much for your question. Folks, this is The Roger Stone Show here on 77 WABC. I did promise you that before the end of the show, I was going to tell you uh, who Deep Throat was. And I'm going to tell you that now. If you're holding on, you got a question, don't go anywhere. But uh, Deep Throat, of course, was the famous source for Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, the reporters for The Washington Post. What's very strange is Deep Throat is not mentioned in their famous book, All the President's Men. He's also not mentioned in the movie that starred Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. He's also never mentioned in any of their reporting for the Washington Post. Uh, When the heat comes on, uh, and uh, there are many people in a parlor game trying to figure out who Deep Throat is, uh, after he's already had a stroke, uh, Woodward and Bernstein say, well, Deep Throat was Mark Felt who was at one time the number three man at the FBI. In fact, Mark Felk had already left the FBI uh, and would not have been eligible or able to get a lot of the information that was leaked to Woodward and Bernstein. That's because Deep Throat uh, is White House Chief of Staff and former deputy to Henry Kissinger, General Al Haig. How do we know this? Al Haig learns that the Watergate special prosecutors uh, learn about the secret taping system that ends up ending Nixon's presidency. But although Nixon can claim executive privilege uh, to prevent the release of those tapes, Al Haig fails to tell Nixon for three days uh, that Alexander Butterfield, a White House aide, is about to testify for the Senate Watergate hearings and reveal the existence of the tapes. Who created the 18 and a half minute gap uh, in the tapes that is uh, blamed on Nixon or that his secretary, Rosemary Wood, took the rap for? I believe that that was done uh, by General Alexander Haig. Terrific book on this, documents far more uh, than I could ever explain here uh, in the final segment of the Roger Stone Show, but a book called Haig's Coup, Haig's Coup uh, by Ray Locker, a longtime reporter uh, with USA Today. Uh, And there you have it, folks. Deep Throat uh, was uh, a deputy to uh, Henry Kissinger. Thank you so much. Uh, So let's go to um, uh, Brian in Glen Cove. 
Hey, Roger. Good, good to talk with you. I have two of your books, um, who, who Killed JFK, The Case Against LBJ, and, of course, uh, Jeb the Bush Crime Family. Just really quick, um, by the way, thanks for mentioning about Bill Clinton, because that's where he should have been peace over, as well as the Bushes, uh, over technology transfer secrets to the Chinese. Not some young intern who could have been his daughter, really. But let's face it, in this country, you know, sex sells, I guess. It's all about a beret, blue dress, and thong underwear versus technology transfer secrets, you know. But that's where he should have been peace over. But really quick, as far as the election is concerned, do you think there's any chance— that Donald Trump could run with RFK Jr. I know it can't happen now. I realize that. But, you know, something on Dick Morris' show was mentioned today that it's very concerning that, uh, you know, they tried everything with this guy, everything. If they're going to try and put him in jail, he's still going to win the election, apart from cheating. Um, do you think there's any – he's got to pick somebody – and, Roger, you know the guy for 40 years. He's got to pick somebody who'd be ready to go on day one. Do you think there's any chance he could run with RFK Jr.? Is that well, at least uh, in the realm of possibility? Uh, I wrote a piece on this at Substack, which is at uh, uh, substack.rogerstone.com. Uh, uh, but it was a very wistful piece. I think there are a lot of uh, uh, structural prohibitions. First of all, both men would have to be willing. There's no evidence whatsoever that that's the case today. Uh, and in, in at least 30 states, in order to be on the ballot as a... Uh, the Republican candidate for vice president, one would have to be a registered member of the Republican Party. Uh, now, you can run for president as an independent uh, while you're still a registered Democrat, but you cannot be the nominee of the Republican Party while you're a registered Democrat. Uh, I see no circumstance under which RFK would leave the party of his father, Senator Robert F. Kennedy of New York, or his uncle, President John F. Kennedy. Uh, I think that today, if you look at the polls uh, in any kind of analytical way, RFK, who's a Democrat, is taking a disproportionate number of votes, not from Joe Biden, uh, but from Donald Trump. That's because he talks about uh, sealing our border and uh, his concerns about vaccinations and his skepticism about the world, the war in Ukraine. And he doesn't talk about his position on uh, on climate change, uh, on abortion, uh, uh, on guns, on reparations. Uh, but I think I'm jumping ahead. There's no guarantee that RFK will be on the ballot. Uh, I know he's going to try, uh, but it takes $21 million. It's an extraordinarily difficult complicated, arcane, expensive, time and labor intensive process to get on the ballot in all 50 states. You have to deal with 50 different state laws. Uh, and those laws are written by Republicans and Democrats working together uh, to avoid competition, keep everybody off the ballot. So um, I think it is highly unlikely. Now, would I like to see uh, an RFK appointed uh, to the head of HHS in a Trump administration? Yeah, that'd be pretty great. That would be really, really great. So trying to think outside the box, uh, if he fails to get on the ballot, I do think he is, uh, he is rousing a constituency uh, in the country that in the end is more likely to vote for Donald Trump than they are for Joe Biden. Brian, thank you very much for your call. Uh, folks, we've, uh, we're here at uh, 800 848 uh, Taking your questions, uh, Mike in Queens, 
you say you've got a Kissinger story for us. I do. But firstly, I want to tell you that I really appreciate your Bob Grant AM radio style conservative. I was a chauffeur for 30 years in New York City, and I drove famous and infamous people like generous Wayne Gretzky, uh, Piper, and her mom, Sarah Palin, uh, Dr. Donnell Thomas. He was the medical uh, uh, prize winner for for a bone marrow transplant. He told me I was the only one that ever asked him for his autograph. That's after saving hundreds of thousands of people's lives. And uh, the most infamous, Monica Lewinsky, the uh, girl who wore the stained blue dress. My story about Kissinger is I was working a, a party at the uh, Tavern on the Green one Christmas period, and at the end of the, 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 the banquet, the band was playing some swing music. I was in the line of chauffeurs, and to keep warm, I was dancing to the swing music. As Henry Kissinger came out and passed me, he came over and he says to me, you have the beat. In any event, you're doing a great job. I wish you were on earlier during the week. Thank you. Uh, well, be, being compared to the great Bob Grant, Bob Giganti, who was a friend of mine, uh, that is a, a high, high compliment. Uh, Mike, I very much appreciate uh, your call. Uh, let's go to Ryan in Fairfield, New Jersey. Ryan, welcome to the Roger Stone Show. Gray skies are going to clear up, put on a happy face, brush off the clouds <laughs> and cheer up, put on a happy face. The sun's going to come out tomorrow. Well, uh, I'm not sure what that was. A little musical interlude here on the Roger Stone Show. Uh, folks, if you haven't, didn't hear about it, they have now taken the statue of Thomas Jefferson down. Uh, it is no longer, I guess it was outside of uh, City Hall. We all know that the statue of Christopher Columbus is next, which is why I urge you to, uh, whether Italian-American or not, uh, to join the Italian-American Civil Rights League, which is, uh, you can find it, IACRL.org. That's I-A-C-R-L. This is a nonprofit organization. Uh, we pay no one. Everybody involved is a volunteer. We have no overhead, no office, no consultants. Uh, we have volunteer lawyers, uh, and uh, we are fighting to preserve Italian-American heritage, our history uh, and our customs because we are proud Italian Americans. Uh, so folks, uh, please take a minute to go to the website. It's the Italian American Civil Rights League at IACRL.org. Uh, join there. Uh, once again, a nonprofit. Uh, it, we, will, we very much need your support uh, in this up coming fight. There is no doubt in my mind whatsoever that those who remove the statue of Thomas Jefferson uh, really want to remove the statue of Christopher Columbus. Uh, and that is 
anti-Italian-American bias. Now, people say, well, wait a minute, your name is Stone. Uh, why do you care? Well, my family name is Corbo. Uh, my people came from Sicily, uh, and some friendly clerk uh, at Ellis Island uh, pulled the name Stone out of the air. So I'm proud to be with you as a proud Italian-American right here on The Roger Stone Show. God bless you and Godspeed. We'll talk to you next Sunday. Hang on for Joe Piscopo with Sundays with Sinatra.